This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media. With me today is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Our guests here at the roundtable today are Justin Gibney, an Atlanta-based lawyer and the co-founder and president of the AMP campaign, and Michael Ware, a political strategist and the former director of faith-based initiatives at the Obama White House. Today, we're going to be talking about the elections, the results, what they tell us, what they don't tell us, about where we are, where the church is in terms of politics, public witness. We're also going to talk about pandemic amnesty, this idea that was floated last week and was not received well by most people. And then lastly, we're going to touch a little bit on the past, present, and future of Twitter. So stay with us. Okay, so we're recording this on Thursday morning. It's been an interesting week. I think we've all woke up on Wednesday a little bit surprised to see the results. I think uh, I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday, and the the comment from from all of the hosts was essentially, "No one knows anything at this point anymore." That we've had, depending on how you judge it, four to six election cycles now, where the results have been rather unpredictable. I think. The first question I'd like to throw out to you, Michael, would be, how do you see the results reflecting the state of the, the state of politics in, in the sense that we expected to see this emotional outrage, right, in a red wave? There's been a great deal of emotional outrage around the threat to democracy from the other side of the conversation. What has landed on our plates has been kind of lukewarm, right? Like there's either not a wave or there's two waves that are crashing together. What do you make of what we're seeing on Thursday morning now? Yeah, I mean, the idea of two waves crashing together, I think, is one I, I want to think about quite quite a bit. I mean, w- one of the things I was, I don't know if looking forward to is, is the right term, but, you know, we, we have as has become a common observation of politics, which is increasingly not about a common conversation, but about these sort of uh, echo chamber conversations. And election day is really the one day where everyone has to look at the same object, where everyone has to is is looking at the same thing, which is which is what happens when all of these uh, echo chamber conversations, what happens when all of these uh, sort of uh, 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 narrow uh, uh, conversations actually meet. And I think that's uh, what we saw on election day. I, I think um, I, I, I think that folks looking at, at the election results, even if they won't want to uh, admit it or say it out loud, will will have to, I would hope, come to terms with the fact that what what um, what infuriates them, what uh, what they center 
uh, in their politics is not what everybody else was centering. Uh, that that it wasn't uh, what uh, everyone wasn't going to the polls voting on COVID, although I think there's an argument to be made. You look at the New York governor's race. Yes, Hochul won. But by the time the votes were counted, I, th- I think Hochul's up by five percentage points. So it's not like these things didn't matter. I, I think it's 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 more of a, a scenario where you got the sense uh, that that people were hoping that just emotional outrage would carry the day when I'm actually somewhat encouraged that it seems like a significant percentage of voters looked and said, yes, inflation's a problem. Yes, COVID wasn't handled uh, as well as we might like. Uh, but uh, these are complicated issues. <laughs> uh, uh, the, while the other side is saying, you know, this is 100 percent the responsibility of uh, of of uh, the people in power, um, I actually think there's there's a bigger explanation here. Uh, I, I don't think uh, the 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 blame sort of falls on one party alone. And I think that goes for issues both on the right and the left. That voters, in some ways, uh, were a check on some of the easy narratives that the parties and the political operatives were telling. And in that way, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged a bit, but what we, what we will head into 2023 with is what we've had for the last two years, what we've arguably had for the last decade, which is a bitterly divided political elite uh, and a broader electorate that struggles uh, to find voices within our politics that seem to be uh, not interested in manipulating them, but actually uh, taking a look at what's needed for constructive policymaking. And that's a tension that, that, uh, that we're going to continue to see until our elected leaders and political operatives come to understand that, um, that emotion alone isn't going isn't to carry the day for them uh, uh, mm-hmm. election after election. That brings up another question that I think is interesting. Um, and Justin, I'd love to hear you talk about this because, you know, a big part of the work that that you are doing is trying to bring a perspective, bring a voice into politics that uh, brings together ideas that aren't represented by the the polarity of, of politics as we know it. Do, do we see something in these results that reflects um, either a, a greater sense of sophistication by voters uh, are we underestimating what people want and what people are willing to sort of think for themselves and make judgments for themselves and split tickets and vote really on on what they care about rather than mm-hmm. vote on the polarity? Is that is that part of what we're seeing? Um, are you optimistic because of what you're seeing? You know, I'm I'm not convinced either way that there is a national trend or a national pattern that we can pull from this at all. Um, I saw some things that were regional. We saw some things happen in the Southeast in Georgia and Florida that weren't reflected in a lot of other spaces. We saw things happen in Michigan that are probably very different than what's going on in Arizona. So I'm I'm not, I think it's going to take time. I'm not convinced that there, there was anything national that we can necessarily pull from this. And that makes it cleaner. It makes it easier. Uh, it's easier for commentators to talk about. But I'm not sure I'm not sure that case. It, 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 it was more complicated than that from what it seems uh, to me. Uh, I would hope. Right. I hope it's, it's saying that voters were more sophisticated. Uh, Michael talked about the inflation issue. I think people cared about that. I think people of all stripes had a serious concern about that. 
But where a lot of commentators thought, it, you know, Biden would get all the blame and folks would run the other way. I think people realize that, well, does the Republican Party really have an answer for this? Uh, maybe people do realize that it's not something that you can push a button and everything changes and there will no longer be inflation. It doesn't mean that the Democrats didn't do certain things wrong and overheat the economy. But maybe people were saying, well, we know it's not that simple. It's, it's not that easy. You you had people like McConnell, for instance, said, you know, let's not really have an agenda. Then you have Scott on the other, you know, on the other part of the Republican Party say, let's have an agenda. Let's tinker with Social Security. And then came back and said, well, no, we don't want to tinker with it. Maybe people did see through that. And so you have something like the economy and inflation where people are worried about it, but not enough to overwhelm all the other issues. Again, and even with inflation, uh, I still don't know that we see a trend nationwide that we can say this is what Americans were thinking. Maybe we can say this is what Georgians were thinking. Uh, folks in Michigan were thinking. I don't know that there was a national trend to point to. Hopefully that is a sign of, of greater sophistication, uh, not just being tribal, not just a reaction to who was in office at the time, but thinking it through more. I still think it's too early to say, though. Russell, let me ask you this. You know, there's been so much conversation in the last seven years about the quote-unquote evangelical vote. And, you know, the, the you know, going back to 2016, this idea that 81% of evangelicals voted together as a block for Donald Trump. And then in the years that followed, those numbers kind of get picked apart. You know, once you start separating Christians who go to church and Christians who never go to church, the numbers get smaller and smaller. I'm wondering if when you look at what where we are today— what does this tell us anything about what the church is is doing, is voting, is thinking? Does it reflect anything new in that conversation? I think I think the issue right now is less uh, where did the evangelical vote go than it is what can evangelicals learn from what happened in the vote. And I do think that there was a national message coming out of this election, and it was this. Look at uh, the numbers of those under 30 who were voting. I mean, w one of the reasons why um, midterm elections are, are often um, are often not what particularly what Democrats think they're going to be is because there's this, this idea, well, young people are going to come out and vote and they don't. The, the people who normally come out to vote in midterms are baby boomers, older people who are accustomed to voting. Not this year. And, and you look at what's happening, there was this sense of we can nominate uh, for, from the Republicans, we can nominate uh, as crazy as can be yeah. uh, people who say uh, we're, we're going to not only deny that the election, uh, the election results from the last time, but we're going to keep the, the people's vote from counting next time when we have mm -hmm. power for that to happen. And for, for, the, for the most part, those candidates lost despite inflation, despite everything else. And so I think there's a tendency in the, not in the politics of the nation, but the politics of the church to assume that the way that we operate is to appeal to the loudest, angriest Mm -hmm. uh, people who are in front of us right now. And what you end up doing is sacrificing the next generation who, who look at this and say, wait a minute, this is, this is not real. Um, and so I think there is a great deal of exhaustion. I mean, you look at what was coming up uh, into the election. You had the uh, reemergence of uh, Donald Trump doing rallies uh, all over the country, talking about uh, talking about two-hour trials and, uh, and shooting people and sending the bullet to their to 
of their uh, families. You, you think of the attack that happened on Paul Pelosi and maybe even more uh, more relevantly, the, the sort of joking uh, that would take mm. place uh, from a lot of candidates. I mean, that did not uh, resonate in this in this election. And I think there are some important lessons to learn there. Oh, yeah. If I could just jump in. Uh, I, I really agree with Dr. Moore there. And the, the flip side of that is, I, I think so many times uh, cons- conservatives will say, and, and, and Christians will say, look, we have these principles and either the American people are going to support them or reject them. They'll either win elections or lose elections, but it really doesn't matter how we carry them. It really doesn't matter how we talk about them. And to to, to Dr. Moore's point, yes, we saw sort of more extreme uh, uh, candidates uh, on the right side lose. We also saw, you look at Ohio and uh, Governor DeWine winning re-election uh, uh, annihilating the Democratic candidate. You see Brian Kemp in Justin's state of Georgia, who was someone who, strong conservative, but was willing to reach out to those who weren't part of his base, who was willing to uh, convince, who, who, who governed in a way that convinced a lot of Georgians that uh, he's governing for the whole state. We don't agree with him all the time, but but he's someone with an eye on the entire electorate, not just on a narrow base. And so kind of the encouragement there is, you know, I talk about polarization a lot, and I, I, I think polarization is a profound force in our politics. Th- these midterm results don't sort of uh, erase the power of polarization, the the uh, the toxicity of polarization. Uh, but we did see in this election some indications that there's only so far polarization is going to take independent uh, is going to take sort of moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats. At some point, they draw the line and say, look, I know this person is of my party, but uh, but there's there's another way to go about advancing Republican or Democratic ideals without uh, without isolating the rest of the state. And I, if I was a Republican, I'd be looking at Mike DeVine. I'd be looking at Brian Kemp and saying, what what did they have that allowed them in states where uh, where you had Democrats picking up seats and uh, people like Raphael Warnock, uh, mm-hmm. you know, contesting in the Senate election. What did Kemp have that that uh, that Herschel Walker did not? Well, you also ought to look at uh, some of these elections that were lost. Jamie Herrera Butler's seat, Peter Meyer's seat. Uh, these yes. are Republicans who, uh, because of their um, their deeply felt convictions about what is right, uh, voted for impeachment, were hounded out of the party in primaries in Republican districts. Who won? I mean, yeah. Jamie Herrera Butler yes. is replaced with a candidate who was uh, speaking to white nationalist podcasts and uh, defending uh, Nick Fuentes, a, a, a literal uh, uh, fascist. Uh, they lost. Democrats won those red seats because there's a limit to what people will uh, will take. And I think there was this this idea. Well, if you're if you're not with us 100 percent, we're going to hound you out of the tribe and no one has any option but to elect whoever we put up uh, instead. And that proved not to be true. And I I would say that I I hope this is the case. I'm I'm with the other two and hoping that. But I think we do have to see Carrie Lake is still out there. I mean, she's I don't know if you get too much worse in that regard. In Nevada, (laughs) you have the Republican senator. I mean, look, Warnock, I mean, Walker in Georgia was running against Warnock, who's an incumbent. Uh, What what Kemp had that Walker didn't have was an incumbency. 
Uh, and so I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And so, again, I think there is an argument for some uh, regional there's regional differences here. But I, but I'm hoping that people are seeing it, even if it's starting one region or another, that people are seeing that the election denial, all those things has to get thrown out the door because we have real issues in education with the economy and so on that we really have to deal with. Yeah, and I, I think the I think the governance point is a is a good point, Michael. And what's interesting to me, and 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 I think stands out in the pack is of course Florida itself, right? So yeah. Florida, um, uh, DeSantis has won by twenty points. He's flipped Miami Dade County, and his his policies are extremely popular in the state. And when he campaigns, he campaigns as a culture warring Trumpy candidate. Um, does does that tell us something about the electorate as well? Like, it's is he the guy who's basically saying, "Look, I'll give you the best of both worlds. I'll I'll govern in a way that you like, and I'll also do the performative, um, you know, uh, professional wrestler routine as part of my campaigning and and drawing people together." I, I, you know, I, I think um, I think what's important is yes, DeSantis has done you know some of the quote unquote you know sort of culture warring. He's addressed issues like uh, public education. Uh, but, you know, you look at DeSantis' approach on abortion, and he said he, he, pro-life rhetoric, uh, uh, but he didn't go beyond Florida's 15-month uh, or 15-week uh, law. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at the exit polls from the midterms and the national exit polls, I think people would be surprised. 50% uh, uh, of the country thought that uh, the conversation, the national conversation around gender issues was going in a, in the wrong direction, in a, in a bad direction. Uh, uh, now the problem is that, is that that didn't dictate, people didn't view that as the singular issue driving their vote. Uh, so there has to be, a uh, I think the social conservatives need to, need to recognize we could win on that issue. Uh, and, but there are a lot of other reasons that people, people would vote. And, uh, but I think DeSantis, yes, has that tone. Uh, yes, is willing to pick fights. But at the policy level, like you said, his the actual policies he implements are 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 quite popular across the state, and and that that is um, uh, so. Independents living in the state hear Democrats say, "Oh, this guy's an extremist." This guy, and th but they look look at our look at our lives. We're not we're not seeing from their perspective. We're not seeing. Uh, uh, Policies that have upended our existence and that kind of thing, and so uh, I think it's I think it's a really interesting thing. I'd also don't you know Marco Rubio performed really well in the state too, so I do think that it's um, I think it's a story about the Republican Party in Florida, not necessarily just oh DeSantis is this is this great great politician. I, I think we're seeing deeper trends in Florida politics, particularly you know that flip in Miami Dade. Uh, uh, we didn't see the Hispanic vote sort of transform nationally like that, but there is something with the Cuban vote in Miami-Dade that has been building for a long time that seemed to have really crested in this election that Democrats are are going to have to uh, pay some real real attention to. Let's talk about the Dobbs decision and how that has shaped things. Um, abortion was on the ballot in a variety of ways. There was an amendment in my own state. I live in Kentucky about abortion. Did did that make a significant impact on what we saw on Tuesday? 
Yes. I mean, obviously from the exit polling, it did both in terms of uh, both in terms of people's votes and also in terms of mobilization of voters. And here's here's what I think is important as somebody who's been working in the pro-life movement for 25 years. Uh, there, there were always those people who would say, well, don't worry about the law. Let's let's simply worry about persuading uh, people not to have abortions. Uh, and and that's that's not a that, that's not a right position. The law has yeah. to uh, has to protect the vulnerable. But it's also true that there are people who assume, well, if you just have the law, and it, then you don't have to persuade people as to why we ought to care about the lives of unborn children. And when you add to that this sense of you, you really can't build a pro life ethic. If you if you have a a derision of vulnerability, yes. and so when you have, have this cognitive dissonance of pro life but erosion of norms, civility, hatred of, of of vulnerable people, that that doesn't feel real to people, and they yes. start to assume that that's just a trick. And so what what has to happen is if there's it could be possible that what we end up with is similar to what you see in Ireland, uh, which which was always the pro-life Catholic outlier yeah. and is now solidly uh, pro-choice, that the same thing could happen with voters under 30 who are, are forming their, their political identities right now. You could end up with an America that is far more uh, pro-abortion rights than it ever was before. That's why those of us who are pro-life have to come in and say, okay, this isn't a partisan wedge issue. This is about persuading people to care for women in crisis and for their children and that we can do both. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, Dobbs certainly mattered. Uh, the law matters as well as culture. So we do have to have that multiple pronged approach when we when we discuss it. And I, this is what worried me. I mean, if you look at what happened with Proposal 3 in Michigan, uh, a lot, you know, after the Dobbs, Dobbs decision came down, there was a lot of triumphalism. And I, and I always thought it was way too premature that it wasn't even, a, a, I mean, I, that it was almost hurtful to react to it in that way and also to allow a number of conservative um, elected officials and leaders to speak about it and even make proposals that were reckless. And of course, when you make those proposals, when you speak about it in that way, the other side is going to take, or the, the pro-choice side is going to take uh, those talking points and take what you said, those quotes, and they're going to make a big deal about it. And I think they opened up an opportunity that if the, if the Dobbs decision was handled differently and the reaction was different, that it could have kind of toned it down a bit and been prepared for a fight on the state level. Now, I know there's plenty of people that have been doing this for a long time who were fighting on the state level, folks out in Michigan who are fighting Proposal 3. But it's something we got to think about. Lastly, I would say this. I think it brings the clear need. What happened uh, on Tuesday brings a clear need for different messengers, too. I think there are a number of people of color out there that that can speak well on this issue and that need to be brought to the forefront uh, in this debate uh, because I think it's the the argument is pigeonholed as if it comes from just a certain group of people uh, and I think in in certain times that credibility there isn't always there. Let's bring some other voices into the conversation and get this rolling. And I agree with Dr. Moore in a more nonpartisan way, uh, but surely a more diverse way when it comes to uh, demographics. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think both of those comments are are, are spot on. I, I just add, Dobbs changed the rules of abortion politics. 
I mean, uh, abortion politics just does not function post-Dobbs in the way that it has typically functioned for 50 years. And one of the main reasons for that is that the pro-life side had the benefit of being the underdog, of, of, of being, of not having teeth because it didn't have uh, sort of the, at least the American people didn't judge the pro-life side to have the legal sort of uh, ability to enforce what they were advocating for. Uh, after Dobbs, all of a sudden pro-life, pro-lifers could be perceived as the aggressor in this culture war. And that requires a different approach. And it just requires that um, you, you need to think about the power you're wielding in a different way. And to Dr. Moore's point, I think that there is more openness among the American electorate for pro-life legislation um, that is advanced by people who uphold a pro-life ethic who uphold the culture of life. What the American people are definitely going to reject is pro-life legislation wielded as a political tool by people who don't who don't themselves seem to 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 uphold the dignity of the human person. Uh, and, and that is something that I think we should understand uh, 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 we, we should understand why that would be rejected and take seriously to Justin's point, uh, who who are the voices? Who are the leaders who are advancing pro life legislation? And and are they people who live with integrity, not just when they're in front of a podium, but but uh, throughout the whole the whole of their life? Well, think about the think about the Herschel Walker uh, campaign. Uh, it, it not so much the the particular issue of whether or not uh, Herschel Walker paid for abortions, but the reaction from uh, pro-life people who would go on television and would say, well, even if that's the case, even if he was paying for abortions, and even if he's now lying about that, we still are going to uh, support him because he will be a vote for uh, for ending lots of abortions. I mean, that is, that is not the sort of personal moral credibility that can reach to people and say, here, Here's why you ought to really care about this. When people see that, they think, oh, well, then then this is just a tool. It's not yeah. really anything real. And you can't sustain a pro-life movement on that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, being here in Georgia, I can't tell you how many of my more progressive friends who know I'm pro-life would send me the articles about the next woman coming out saying that, that Walker actually asked her to have an abortion. And I think Georgia was an example of bad Christian politics when it comes to the abortion issue. You had obviously Walker, who seemed to be a, a hypocrite in that regard. Then you you had uh, uh, Warnock, who I think talked about abortion in a very irresponsible way, a lot different than the folks in the black church that I know talk about it. And so there really wasn't that. You had two Christian, black Christian men, but they really didn't have the representation of, especially on that issue that I think a lot of people uh, in, in our community do. And it made it tough for a lot of people. I, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I think some people were saying, well, yeah, Walker, I didn't vote for him in the primary. I don't want to deal with him at all. But I think some Republicans were saying, but this could be a potential uh, Supreme Court seat. He is going to vote pro-life. And so I, I think it did complicate it from, for some folks who otherwise would, would, would completely have uh, rejected him uh, pursuant to character. Well, and I think there's a, a challenge, you know, presented by the by the Trump story, because lots of people said, you know, well, man, I'm going to roll the dice on on voting for Donald Trump, even though I have these other objections, because I'm worried about the courts, I'm worried about abortion. And then Trump delivers on his promise to elect, you know, or to nominate pro-life judges, and it, it sets the conditions for the court to be what it is. 
I think part of what I wonder in all of this is, what does it tell us about the moral and ethical imagination of Christians and, and believers, and really of the sort of the body politic, right? That there's, you know, I think there's a, there, you know, the old saying that, that uh, um, uh, hypocrisy is the compliment that vice plays to virtue, right? Like that uh, there's a, there, there's an element of that in, at work in the way we've thought about the pro-life issues with, with politicians like Trump and politicians like Herschel Walker. Um, but I think there's also an element in which the you kind of see the uh, the people saying, "Nah, I'm not, I'm not buying it." You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy into what I'm being sold, which is like, "Hey, it doesn't matter what they actually do; it just matters what they're going to to empower." I also think it says something about the way we think about um, ethics, you know, and accomplishing public ethic. Right? If 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 I can, by sort of strength of will, strength of policy, get something done, that's good yes. enough. And that yes. leaves the, the moral imagination untouched, um, which isn't actually going to change anything. Um, it's just going mm. to drive the issues either other ways or it's going gonna, it's gonna to create new fights and new venues, which is part of what I think you see on the other side of Dobbs is, it, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily a lot of ground one on the, on the imagination side. Um, so the, the decision comes down and it seems like with these different referenda and with uh, what, you know, with what we're seeing with the candidates, um, people are, are, are sort of saying, well, we don't want this, you know, like, yeah. we're rejecting it. Well, and it, it reinforces uh, the problem because to say, well, it, it, we have to do things that violate our conscience in order to get a greater good. That's exactly the conversation that someone is having walking into an abortion clinic. This is wrong. This is awful. But I have to do it in order to uh, live live the life and maybe to care for my other children or so forth. Once you get the idea that the ends matter, but the ways and means don't, then what you end up doing is empowering that that very uh, all of those forces that you think are the problem, and and I think that's what we're seeing. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Let's pivot to another topic, actually, that I think is connected to this. Uh, last week, Emily Oster wrote a piece about the idea of pandemic amnesty. Um, and, it, and I think the, the gist of the piece is, is saying, look, if you look across the board in the way uh, politicians and, and sort of different tribes in our country, the way we responded to COVID, everybody got 
something wrong. Everybody got certain aspects of it wrong. Uh, this side sort of turned it into a culture war. Um, that side, over, you know, there was overreach in terms of how policies were uh, written and enforced and, and the way the expectations were. Uh, why don't we just sort of, let, let's have an amnesty, let's let bygones be bygones and um, have a sort of spirit of forgiveness and move forward. That was not received well, uh, to say the least. There was a lot of frustration and pushback on it. It also came uh, around the same time as a, an SNL sketch uh, that that was sort of a, it was a digital short and sort of the joke of the of the sketch was, hey, if you're tired, if you're worn out, you know, you want to get away from, you know, a few days off from work, why don't you try COVID, <laughs> you know, and uh, as a, sort of a joke that get COVID, you'll get a few days off work and, and get, get, get a chance to get some rest. That also was not received well. Um, so I think you can say we're not in a laughing mood about COVID yet in the United States, um, by and large, and that emotions around this stuff run really high. We've already talked a little bit about how I think there was an expectation that COVID was going to be seen in the results from Tuesday. It, I don't know that it was, um, but where you know where do we go from here? I, I'd be curious your thoughts. Let me start with you, Justin. Um, when you think about this idea of, of pandemic amnesty, when you look at the communities that you serve and you speak for, do you see a, a spirit of animosity and frustration? around COVID policies and the, the, uh, the, the consequences of that that are unfolding right now? How are you thinking about the consequences of COVID and how they're going to play out in our communities uh, in, the, in the coming couple of years here? I'm extremely concerned. Um, to answer the first part of your question, I think in general, we, we all know that as Christians, our, our disposition, our posture should be one of forgiveness. It should be one of peacemaking. Uh, the vengeance, the I told you so, we really just don't have time for, for that. We have to be solution oriented. And whatever we do, whether it's amnesty or whether it is holding people accountable, it has to be about solutions. It has to be about human flourishing because there are too many problems going on. So I'll, I'll say that the vengeance, uh, the partisanship, the culture war, it, it just has to stop because especially when it comes to our children, there's there's some things that we have to deal with. Now, I do think we should pay attention to who got things more right when it comes to things like education, the economy and crime, because we can't correct them if we don't really take a, a look at that. And that may mean holding some people accountable who maybe shouldn't be on the school board anymore. I mean, depending how they responded to things. So I, I don't think it's a matter of completely forgetting what happened, especially when it comes to education, which is what worries me the most. If you look at what's going on, we have in some areas, children that are, you know, our education, we're set back when it comes to reading almost two decades. And obviously when it comes to lower income people, the, the impacts get worse and worse. And you had a moment where I think we would all agree that in early 2020, maybe throughout most of 2020, it made sense to uh, err on the side of caution. But there was a point when the data came out and the data made it fairly clear that that schools should be open. There was there was a certain ideological approach that left schools closed. Um, and we're left with a generation of kids that may not recover. I'm prayerful that, you know, that we can keep working at it. And, and we know that there was going to be certain losses when it comes to, to learning in general, just based on the pandemic. But it could have been handled better. The last thing that I'll bring up is how we handle science. Uh, I think the the mainstream media could have handled the science of it a, a little better as well. Think back. 
there was a moment when people were literally being censored for even talking about the lab leak theory, uh, for even bringing it up. Now we come today, we get a, a report out of the Senate that says the lab leak theory might be the most, you know, most likely um, a means of the spread or how, how it all started. Uh, but are we talking about gain of function? Why, why is gain of function still being funded in, in ways that it probably shouldn't be funded? And are we going to address some of the conflicts of interest that came with some of what we thought were noble lies? Uh, but in the end, there, there are some things going on that I think have to be addressed. So amnesty altogether may be too strong. Salute being solution oriented and making sure that we're finding we're aimed towards human flourishing is the best way to go, in my opinion. Russell, let me ask you this. One of the things that I saw constantly in the reaction to the, to the amnesty piece in particular was assigning motive to the people you disagreed with. You know, we can't we can't have amnesty because these people X Y Z. Whether it was about mm. the exercise of power, whether it was because they didn't care about their neighbor, um, they they were committing genocide of old people. You know, like it it goes. It goes from a policy disagreement, I think this is the best thing, to, uh, you know, this this good versus evil moral absolutes stuff. What is it in us that drives us towards that kind of uh, assigning that kind of moral motive, ethical motive to, to our neighbors? You know, Creed Bratton on The Office said one time that he had been in many cults, both as a follower and as a leader, and you have more fun as a follower, but you you make more money as a leader. I I always, in all of these conversations, want to differentiate between the, the leader yes. and the followers. Yeah. And so you, you have different sorts of things going on. I, I have uh, neighbors in my community who were really convinced that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin would would uh, would deal with covid uh, I, I have a, a very different attitude toward them they, they were receiving information and and maybe they just uh, trusted the wrong people for that information I take that in a different light than I do the people who knew that this was just tribal signaling uh, and, and we're trying to to do that as a marketing tool. So I think we have to. Uh, I, that's why I don't think the the conversation of amnesty is really a good one. You you have to you have to differentiate between um, just good faith making wrong decisions. And I think the uh, same thing on the the other side. You had uh, a lot of school boards and, and teachers who are saying, look, we don't know how to do this without spreading this to our communities. And so they, they maybe kept schools shut, shut, uh, shut a little longer than they should have. But then you also have uh, some teachers unions uh, and others who were acting as though schools should be closed indefinitely and and knew better. And so I, I think we have to differentiate those those things. And I do think it's important, uh, not in terms of um, exercising vengeance uh, toward one another, but to step back and say, okay, what can we learn about the assumptions that we all had uh, in this? And one of the things I think we learned was that as much as we were hoping that a big national emergency uh, would mm. somehow unify the country, it didn't. Mm. That you mm. can't have that kind of unifying if you have the breakdown of trust uh, that, that we have. And part of that breakdown of trust is because of what uh, Amanda Ripley calls conflict entrepreneurs, um, mm. people who really, who really know how to exploit and to accelerate 
those uh, those 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 uh, dissipations of trust. I think that is what we ought to learn out of this. Michael, let me ask you a question. I think you look at church history. One of the things that um, shows up a time and time again is in moments of crisis, moments of plague and disease and whatnot, the church often thrives in the midst of it because the church had a response that moved towards serving the sick, serving those that are uh, that were in need in those moments. What, what do we make of the fact that the church has, because of some of the loudness of the voices of the church, um, in terms of what's being amplified in the media, the church's reputation in terms of how COVID was managed, um, by and large, doesn't seem to have been great. Um, it seems to have been, what, what was amplified anyway, seems to have been um, an amplification of the the people who wanted to make it into a fight and who wanted to draw lines in the sand and, and pick fights with local m- municipalities and whatnot. Um, I guess the the question I would ask would be two parts. One is, is that a fair, you know, is what we're seeing, is that a fair amplification of the reality? And number two, why, you know, what what do you make of the the drive towards turning this into a, a, a polarizing issue, which is really a, a question both for the church and more broadly? Yeah. Well, I mean, so look, I, I understand, I think sometimes we take the assumption that Christians are going to be doing things for the good of others. So we don't state those things out loud and we focus on where the conflict is. And so I don't want to do the opposite of that. I spend time with pastors every day and I know how the burden so many pastors were facing financially uh, because of just the practical impacts of COVID, but also just in shepherding a congregation where every decision they made around COVID precautions, whether it was ordered by the state or not, uh, opened them up to not just uh, questions of politicization uh, and why aren't you taking a stand, but uh, you know, don't, don't you believe in the value of the church congregating? And, and you know, for pastors to be presented with those kinds of accusations is just really something else. But but I do feel like it's important to say. Look, there are countless shut-ins and people who became shut-ins because of COVID that if it was not for the church, they would not have gotten groceries uh, every week because churches set up uh, set up uh, systems in which to make sure that the people who are in their congregations were, were tended to. If, if not for the church, we would not have uh, been able to see so much of the emotional, social, material support that helped see not just the church, but the country through COVID. Uh, If it wasn't for, and I mean, like, it's important to say, if it wasn't for uh, Christians who started hospitals and started medical uh, nonprofits, then the entire medical infrastructure that we're even having these conversations about would not exist, you know? And so, like, it's just so important. Like, yes, let's talk about uh, uh, pastors who were saying crazy things from the pulpit about chips and arms and all that kind of thing. But I just want to make sure that we're not avoiding the 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 overwhelming contribution to the public good that Christians have made in the areas of medicine, of serving those who are affected by epidemics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, When it comes to this polarization question, you saw folks who felt like systems were working against them 
leveraging some of the same kind of rhetoric that they would critique among communities who who talk about systemic oppression. And so all of a sudden, I, I mean, I don't know if you saw these these signs, uh, all of a sudden, the b- businesses and conservative areas would put up signs saying, you know, we don't discriminate on the basis of dun, 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 uh, you know, all uh, race, religion. Uh, but the whole point why they put up the sign is because it added vaccinated or unvaccinated. They didn't have the we don't discriminate signs up before. <laughs> they only put the sign up to say, look, w- this is the new discriminated against community. So I do think there was a a, um, a, a really um, troubling um, emotional sort of need, psychological need that people were were meeting with being able to leverage this sort of rhetoric in ways that weren't necessarily uh, reflective of, of the situation, of the information that we had. The last thing I'd say is uh, just to defend the Oster piece. I, I, wrote, I wrote about this. I deeply admire Emily Oster for writing this piece. What's important to understand is that if if there's anyone in the country that has the right to be doing victory laps around education and school closures, it's Oster. She was one of the very first public champions of saying, look, the data is not justifying the educational harms that school closures are are having. And she expressed concerns about masking and the effect that that had on on education. And and so her writing the piece uh, to me was such a, it was her saying, uh, she didn't say it explicitly, uh, which I think was valuable too. But the piece was, look, I could be doing victory laps and raising money off of the fact that I was right and all these people who wanted to harm your children were wrong. But we need to let go of some of those those personal animosities. Uh, my view on the piece was that she wasn't saying, you know, don't vote against Kathy Hochul or DeSantis if you thought that their policies were wrong. But But like others have said, it was, look, maybe the local business owner who felt like they needed to shut down uh, maybe you disagree with their position, but, but but maybe that's not a grudge you should hold against a local business owner. Or maybe the school principal, uh, maybe they should have uh, 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 been more bold in confronting the school superintendent or the school board. But but maybe you give these, these local people, the, the relationships we have, family members who weren't as respectful of the precautions you thought were necessary or impose precautions on you that you thought were not necessary. Maybe we just need to understand like the fog of war here and not have the next three years of our life be dominated by these animosities in the way that the previous three years were. And I think that's a wise thing. Uh, While, as Dr. Moore said, yes, purveyors of willful disinformation, people who were willfully imposing, using COVID as a way to uh, aggrandize themselves or harm others. Yeah, that that needs to be held to account. As Justin said, we need to look at the CDC and, uh, and our public health systems and why they didn't function as well. As they have said, Dr. Collins of NIH has said, there were things we got wrong. Okay, so let's look at what we got wrong because this isn't the last pandemic we're we're going to face. I mean, we're dealing with monkeypox. Uh, there's the respiration issues. That, so uh, it's not backward looking to say how could we improve in the future. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Last topic for the day, we are you know watching sort of day by day Twitter is evolving. Um, some of us are on Twitter more than others. Some of us are intentionally very, uh, shall we say, have a high fence around our Twitter feeds um, because of what we've experienced negatively on Twitter. I think we could probably all agree that the effect of social media and Twitter in particular on our political conversations is that it contributes to some of the worst tendencies, the polarization, um, and the, the loud noise, the violent sort of threats and attacks. You know, I know probably all of us have, have been uh, heard vile things via social media over the years. At the same time, you know, I just finished this, you know, lengthy series on, on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Social media played a critical role in holding uh, abusive leaders to account in that church, played a critical role in the Me Too movement, played a critical role in the Church Too movement, played a critical role in uncovering abuse within the SBC. When you think about, you know, the potential that future, or the potential that Twitter is going to be a radically different place, or that this could be the greatest blunder in the history of entrepreneurship, and you know, Elon Musk is going to lose forty-four billion dollars, and the thing will be gone in a year. Um, is that a net loss or a good for the the life of the church, the witness of the church, and the state of our politics? Let's start with uh, let's start with you, Justin. Ooh, yeah, I'd say that's tough to calculate. I mean, on one <laughs> from one end, I don't know that I could have started the AND campaign the way I did and met some of the people and been introduced to the, some of the people that are a part of it now and that have you know contributed to it without. Twitter and other parts of social media. I don't know if I could have done that. At the same time, I do see the negative that comes with it, the the anonymity, the tribalism, uh, the ways people talk to others that they would never speak to them in person in that way, but somehow feel empowered um, and incentivized even uh, to, to communicate in that way and not just uh, folks who are secular. We're talking about Christians here. We're talking about Christians who really use Twitter to troll to somehow think think they're bringing about they can bring back some kind of uh, renaissance of orthodoxy by uh, trolling people and speaking to them in ways that I don't know how you read the Bible and justify the insult for insult and the things that we see on Twitter. So I don't think we can go backwards. Uh, this is uh, to some extent a, a Pandora's box. We can only move forward. You can't take it away, regardless of what happens with Elon Musk. Something Twitter-like or something that moves this this forward is is gonna be there. Uh, we can't go backwards, but I think, especially for Christians, we can think about how to discipline ourselves and what we incentivize on Twitter or whatever the next iteration of this will be to make it a more constructive conversation to 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 mitigate some of this toxicity and we certainly can't continue to participate in it. Michael? 
Yeah, no, I yeah, I, it's hard to say whether the 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 shuttering of Twitter would be a net positive because something's going to fill the vacuum, uh, and so just uh, Twitter closing down doesn't mean that the the capacities and the opportunities that Twitter presented go away. Um, in uh, the book, uh, uh, I co-author with with Justin and our, our brother Chris Butler, um, Compassion and Conviction. Uh, there's a closing chapter where you know, we talk about uh, Howard Thurman's book Jesus and the Disinherited, and, and Thurman talks about the development and uh, the development of hatred as involving something he calls contact without fellowship. And in that context, he was talking about, he kind of gives the example of, say you were in a car driving through a neighborhood that was not your own, and you look out the window, and you, you kind of feel like you're getting a sense of what's happening in the neighborhood, and you you sort of take, uh, you make judgments based on that, but you're not really experiencing the neighborhood. You're driving by with your window up and, and just uh, catching you know blurry glances at what's happening. And social media, and I'd say, like Twitter especially, it gives you the um, it gives you the impression that oh, I'm getting an inside look at what my political opponents really think. Uh, when often what you're catching is yeah, just a a, a a a faint reflection of a sort of caricature of a sort of a, a carnival house view of what people not like you think and, and act and what they say. Uh, and, and that is something we need to contend with. We need to make sure that we're not developing hatreds on, on this sort of false fellowship that we're getting out of social media. Russell Moore. What concerns me is if you look at the last week, Elon Musk, new owner of Twitter, seems to be embodying some of the, in his own person, some of the worst aspects of Twitter, spreading uh, misinformation and disinformation in the Paul Pelosi case, uh, the sort of uh, trolling of uh, various people, including his own advertisers uh, in this case. Uh, And it doesn't seem to me that that's that's taking it in a better direction. And uh, there was a book, uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism, came out last year that made the point that most people on Twitter are not crazy. Most people on Twitter are actually normies, but they're not posting because the more crazy you have, the more the normies step back because they have lives. Uh, It's going to cost them something if they act like a jerk uh, on Twitter. What worries me is that is being replicated in real life. Mm. And so you see the sort of troll culture Uh, pushing more reasonable people out of spaces. You see that happening in churches. You see it happening in denominations. You see it happening in political parties. And if we don't get at that, that that really starts with this play acting on social media and then starts to become, I mean, one of the things we know uh, from from scripture is that the the more that you act in a certain way, the more you become that uh, sort of person or you end up disintegrating and and yes. sort of p- taking your feelings yes. and your thoughts and you're your, your separating them, that leads to nowhere good. And, and that's what we have to, I think, address. And if I could add, I think that's a great point by Dr. Moore. One thing that I also helps these kind of tribal leaders who might not have the best of intentions is the complete lack of proportion and frequency that Twitter and the internet bring. 
right? So they can take mm-hmm. any instance. Someone, someone in Montana says the N word, and they can act make it seem like it was the person next door, and that it's happening every second right near you. And I think as Christians, we need to get some perspective, get a sense of proportion and frequency to say, I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to let these folks put me into a rage every time something like this comes up. It may be a problem, may not be a problem. I'm not going to overreact every time it comes up because this is a little bit skewed and there may be a better way to, to look at it. And it's, and it's not just the sort of uh, sort of trolling and, and, and misinformation that Justin just mentioned. It's also the fact that it, it for most things, it takes an amount of attention and reflection to change one's mind on something. And we know from study after study after study, the minute that somebody takes a a public commitment to something, it becomes really difficult for that person uh, to change his or her mind because they're they're out there, they're publicly committed. You look at sort of the, the culture that comes around Twitter where if somebody doesn't respond to something immediately, <laughs> then it, it's silence. When in fact, what might be happening is that person is is looking and and wondering and pondering, uh, right. and that's what we lose. Just to maybe circle back to the beginning of our conversation, uh, Etan Hirsch has this concept of political hobbyists, and he says the the problem with political hobbyists is that what they uh, uh, they are approaching politics as sort of consumers, and their political mode is they, they think that. Tweeting is is engaging in politics, but the very nature of how they engage in politics is actually anti-political. The, the kind of skills that you hone by uh, debating uh, an issue with someone over over Twitter are actually it's not just that they're counter uh, or, or it's not just that they're it's not politics. It's that the kind exactly to Dr. Moore's point, the kind of person you're becoming by engaging in uh, political talk that way actually makes you less uh, able to actually do the work of politics. And so that that political hobbyism is something we need to we need to be careful for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to chime in on what you were saying a moment ago, Russell, uh, you know, Lord forbid we had a, a culture where people took time to think about what, you know, they thought about something before they said something about it. Um, yeah. We've we've certainly lost a lot of that in in our moment. Uh, for my part, um, you know, I've I've narrowed my feed where it's almost exclusively like, you know, friends, people I really admire, and ninety percent of it is Indianapolis Colts news, which is also incredibly <laughs> oh. depressing this year. Yes. So as far as I'm concerned, goodbye to the hellscape that is Twitter, and <laughs> let's you know, let's on with the next the next thing. All right, it's been a crazy week, uh, sleepless nights, long nights. Um, nonstop news, nonstop, uh, uh, you know, confusion where the weekend is almost here. What do each of you plan to do to sort of catch your breath over the weekend? If, if that's even possible this week, uh, let's start with you, Michael. Yeah, it's, um, my eldest daughter's birthday month. And we started a tradition last year of, um, uh, I'll take her into the city 
We'll have dinner. We'll stay at a hotel overnight and jump on the bed and that kind of thing. And she is just uh, uh, she's she's turning four. So she's even more like cognizant and excited about it. So she's been talking about it for months. And that's what we're doing this weekend. And I I can't wait. I have a trip up to New York now and I'll get back Friday night and then we'll 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 do that this weekend. It's it's going to be a blast. Fantastic. Justin. My uh, middle son is uh, in the playoffs in football, uh, so I'll be watching his game, uh, step away and enjoy that, and then going to church on Sunday and loving on uh, loving on my, my fellow Christians. How about you, Russell? Well, this sounds like work, but it actually is <laughs> a, a good deal of how I unwind, and that's teaching Sunday school. Uh, mm. I still say Sunday school. I'm still a Southern Baptist, I guess, at heart. I'm in a non-denominational church that calls it Sunday seminar or something like that, but teaching through uh, <laughs> teaching through Genesis with people I love and um, uh, and the, the calling of Abraham uh, this weekend. I'm looking forward to that. My youngest is starring in a musical based on the life of Stanley. She is Stephanie. Oh. Uh, she has a, a different last name, but it's it's basically uh, the life of Stanley, and she gets to become a superhero in the show. And fight villains and, uh, you know, essentially with a lightsaber that's made of a pencil because she's the comic book artist. So we're excited about that. That's going to—I'll be running sound, I think, for for the entire thing. So I will be sitting behind the soundboard all weekend. So, Excelsior. Well, hey, to, that's great. Thanks. Thank, sorry, what was that? I said Excelsior in honor of <laughs> Stanley. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, thanks to each of you for making time for this on a busy week. Um, so glad we could, could have these conversations. And thank you for listening to The Bulletin, and we will see you here next week. Thanks again to Justin Gibney, Michael Ware, and Russell Moore for joining me today on the podcast. You can learn more about their work in our show notes. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. The host is Mike Cosper. It's produced by Mike Cosper and Azure Phelps. The graphic design is by Brian Todd. Our social media is by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Music by Dan Phelps. Production assistance by Core Media. Coordinator, Beth Gravencourt. Audio engineer, Kevin Duthu. Video producer, John Rowland. Thanks for listening to The Bulletin. We'll see you here again next Friday. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know.